Francis of Assisi was riding a horse down the road that went by a colony of people with leprosy that was situated far beyond Assisi. For then, as in biblical times, uh, people with leprosy or skin diseases were a rejected lot. And Francis was not yet the saint of history. He was still caught between the lure of wealth and fame and glory on the one hand and the life of following Jesus. And he was torn. Yet as he rode along, he was absorbed in these thoughts. And suddenly the horse jerked to one side of the road. And, and with difficulty, Francis pulled him back on course. But, but Francis, as Francis looked up, he recoiled at the sight of a man with leprosy in the middle of the road, right in front of him. He was a, a gray specter with stained face and shaved head. He was dressed in gray sackcloth, and he did not speak. And he showed no sign of moving or of getting out of the way. He looked at the horseman fixedly, strangely, with an acute and penetrating gaze. An instant that seemed like an eternity passed, and slowly Francis dismounted. He walked over to the man. He took his hand. It was a poor, emaciated hand, blood-stained and cold like the hand of a corpse. Francis pressed the hand and brought it to his lips, and as he kissed that lacerated flesh of the creature, who was the most abject, most hated, the most scorned of all human beings, he was flooded with a wave of emotion that shut out everything else around him. Looking back, one biographer describes this as one of the earliest steps in Francis's own conversion to Christ. For something larger was drawing Francis. Someone larger was drawing Francis to himself. And Francis was beginning to encounter something of the heart of Jesus. And it was beginning to change him. To have leprosy in medieval Europe was to live a life cursed and far from others. It was perhaps even worse, though, in first century Palestine. We turn to the gospel according to Luke, where we encounter the same Jesus who was calling St. Francis into a life of converted love. This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to St. Luke, the 17th chapter, beginning in the 11th verse, the Gospel of the Lord. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. They called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, he came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. What do we see here? First, we see Jesus, the restorer. Real 
realize what life was like for people with skin diseases in antiquity, uh, particularly within Jewish Palestine. Uh, you know, skin diseases, it wasn't, it's traditionally called leprosy, but this is not a, a, a reference limited to just what in the modern era is known as Hansen's disease. This applied to any uh, major infectious disease of the skin. Uh, people were put in quarantine, but it was the most severe of quarantine. You could not live in your own home. You could not be around your family. You could not work in your workplace. You could not touch or see your children. You could not take part in social gatherings. You could not worship God in the synagogue. You could not enter the temple. You could not even traverse the narrow streets of large cities. You had to live on the outskirts where you could stay far enough away that no one else might become unclean by brushing up against you. And then the physical part, nerve endings stop working, digits fall off. There was a stigma, a stigma that in my lifetime has probably only ever been uh, seen in the 1980s, the early years of the AIDS epidemic when people hated anybody with HIV. They were afraid of people with HIV. They were afraid that they would get sick. They were th th afraid that they would become infected. People didn't fully understand how the virus uh, uh, actually reached people. And so children who had been infected through a blood transfusion were, were forced out of schools. And, and I remember even in the 1990s when we began hosting First Light, a ministry to, to, to people uh, who are same-sex attracted or gay, uh, I remember even in the 1990s, this is after protease inhibitors were available, this is when it was already becoming a, a manageable lifelong disease instead of a death sentence, when we knew exactly how it was transmitted and exactly how it wasn't, even in the 1990s, when we hosted a Christian ministry, I remember a family left the church because they could not bear the thought that their child might use a restroom that someone who might possibly have contracted HIV might also have used. It was crazy. There's fear. There's paranoia. Everybody was trying to protect their own. And that's something in a small way of what the experience of someone with leprosy in the first century would have been. Notice how these men were accustomed to standing at a distance away from people. The only way they could communicate was by shouting because of the distance. We read that as Jesus was going into the village, ten men with leprosy met him, and they stood at a distance because they had to. And they called out in a loud voice because they had to, Lord, Master, have pity on us. Lepers were shunned by society, and yet Jesus comes, Jesus the restorer, to restore all of life. Jesus restored their bodies, yes, but the emphasis here is so much larger, a larger restoration. When Jesus saw them and they made the request, he didn't say, I hereby heal you. No, he told them to go to the priests and show yourselves to them. He tells them to show themselves to the priests, which is what the Mosaic law required anybody with a skin disease to do after being cleansed, because in telling them this and showing and, and telling them to go to the priest, he is promising them that he is going to heal them, and he is telling them that, 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 yeah, I mean, you read, as they went, they were cleansed. It was as they trusted Jesus and did what he told them to do. They were cleansed along the way, and their health was restored, but by telling them to go to the local priest, 
or perhaps the priests in Jerusalem, or for the Samaritan, perhaps the priests at Mount Gerizim, which was their, where their, their temple was, they would be certified by the priests according to Mosaic law, certified as clean and authorized to re-enter society. What Jesus is saying when he's saying, go present yourselves to the priests, he's saying, go home to your family, Pick up your child for the first time in 10 years. Sit down and have dinner with your family. Go back to your workplace. Go back to the synagogue. Go back to re-enter into society. Hug your children. Shop in the markets. Walk through the narrow streets of the city. Take part in the public festivals. Go to school again. There's a larger restoration that Jesus was promising them, a restoration to human society and to the communal life of God's people, the restoration of everything they had lost. Jesus came to restore. We see Jesus, the restorer, and that restoration will ultimately be on a cosmic scale. Luke describes the one man who returns to give thanks and, and praise before telling the reader that he wasn't a Jew. You know, he gives all the details of this one person with lepers. He came back and thanked Jesus and was so beautiful. And he says, and he was the Samaritan. Later, Jesus refers to him as this foreigner. And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. You know, Samaritans were despised by the Jews. They were half-breeds. They were heretics. Their, their theology was corrupt. They rejected the prophets. And, and their own Mosaic books were horribly corrupted. And yet Jesus is saying, I came to make a place in my family for Samaritans and not just for Jews. You know, Jesus tells them, your faith has made you well. And, and the actual term there is your faith has delivered you. And because he's already healed him earlier. This is probably likely a spiritual healing in which he is actually reconciled to God by his faith, through his faith in Jesus. Jesus came not only to his fellow Jews who have faith in him, but also to Samaritans. And then you realize in Luke's, we had already read about how he had praised the faith of a Roman centurion, that's a pagan, and healed the son of a Phoenician woman. That's a, that's a Mediterranean, uh, you know, Person. The, the gospel again lays emphasis here again on the inclusive call of Jesus to whoever will come and believe. His salvation ultimately reaches every people group on the earth. By the time we get to the sequel of, of this gospel according to Luke, which is the book of Acts written also by Luke as a sequel, we see it's already in Rome. And there are plans for the gospel to go to, to Spain. And it's ultimately going to go to the very ends of the earth, Jesus says, as he calls out all peoples to come and have life in him. We see Jesus, the restorer. Yet we also see here the very rare jewel of thankfulness. Were all of these men grateful? Ten people were healed. I can, I can assure you all ten of these were ten of the most grateful people on planet Earth at that time because they were getting their families back, their kids back. They could lay in bed with their spouse again. They could eat food with their family. They could shop. They could do all this stuff. They could again worship God with his people. They had been brought back in. These were ten of the most grateful people on the planet. But gratitude is what you feel. Thanksgiving is what you do. And it's rare that the feeling gets translated into an actual giving of thanks to God. Did you notice 
how Jesus emphasizes the rarity of thankfulness. He says, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other of the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? You see, Jesus expected a concrete response to his gift of mercy. He expected thanks. He wasn't looking for payment. He was looking for acknowledgement, for thanksgiving. He was looking for relationship. Ten healed, only one entered into relationship. What does Christian thankfulness look like? We see all the elements here modeled for us by the Samaritan who encountered Jesus. Uh, the elements are there. He says, he came back. He was praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet, and he thanked him. That's four things. Stop what you're doing. Turn around and talk to God and say, God, you have done this. You have granted me this. Thank you. He came back. He stopped what he was doing. Turned around and talked to God. There's an intentionality here. He threw himself at Jesus' feet. Throw yourself at his feet. It's a posture of, of humility, of worship, of dependence. And he praised God in a loud voice. Praise him in a loud voice because he's blessed you. And then he thanked Jesus. All the elements are there. It's stopping what you're doing and turning to God, praising God and giving thanks, bowing down before him. The language is here is descriptive of a a joy-filled turning to God and acknowledging his compassionate provision. It's all over the Bible. Psalm 95, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Or Psalm 120, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. One author says it this way. He says, the Christian life is a song of thanksgiving, a glad and joyous hymn of praise to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul writes, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. This thanksgiving is a part of the relationship into which Christ has called you when he saves you. C.S. Lewis says we ought to give thanks in all fortune. If it's good, give thanks because it's good. If it's bad, Give thanks because it works in us. The patience, humility, and the contempt of this world and the hope of our eternal country. Psalm 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of your wonderful deeds. This is the rare jewel of Christian thankfulness. But you're sitting here thinking, okay, now how do I make myself thankful? And in one sense, you, you can't. There's no switch to turn on or turn it off. You know, you, you first have to gain gratitude toward God. That means recognizing his blessings and, and, and not taking them for granted. And then you've got to take that gratitude and direct it outwardly, vocally to, to, to your God. And this involves matters of the heart. How do you change your heart? How can you become thankful? God can tell you to give thanks. But that in itself isn't going to grow in you, the rare jewel of Christian thankfulness. But St. Paul helps us with this in his letter to the Ephesians, where he explains that you have to be filled with God's Spirit in order to be thankful to God. It's the passage that Riley read earlier from the fifth chapter of Ephesians, where the command is to be filled with the Spirit. And he describes that as speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of love. Those are, that's what it looks like 
to be filled with the Spirit. When you're filled with worship among God's people, you're filled with worship in private in your own heart. Uh, you're always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, and you're submitting to one another because you don't have to have your way. You can surrender your agenda in love. It's a dense sentence here. This one long sentence describing what being filled with the Spirit looks like. But what Paul is telling us is that we, when we come under the influence of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, he compares it to being under the influence of too much alcohol. When we're under the influence of God's Spirit, when we're living out that fullness, we're going to be giving thanks to God in everything. But even the command to be filled with the Spirit, you notice it's a passive command. Not fill yourself up with the Holy Spirit, but be filled, implying that someone else has to do something there. The Holy Spirit. Um, I think these things that flow from the Spirit's fullness in our lives are also part of that feedback loop that invites the Spirit's fullness. The speaking to one another with psalms and hymns, singing about Jesus, singing about God and his salvation, talking to one another about him, pouring God's grace into each other's lives, surrendering your will to love and care for each other, and giving thanks to God in everything is a part of what enables you to be filled with the Spirit. It's a both and. It's a feedback loop. And that involves a surrendered repentance. Even the healing had involved the faith of those who were healed. When they, when they, when they obeyed Jesus and trusted him, they were healed on the way. Uh, and Jesus singles out the one who returned thanks, saying, Rise, go, your faith is, has made you well, or it has literally delivered you. It's, it's saving faith. It's something God has done, but it's required a surrendered repentance. Thankfulness comes to us when we walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit in that surrendered, trusting, feedback loop of grace, worshiping him in private, meditating on his grace inside in the songs of our hearts, uh, speaking God's grace into each other, giving thanks in everything to God and submitting to one another in love. It's, it all flows from God's grace, from his compassion, from the mercy that he has on us. And speaking of mercy requires a changed paradigm concerning issues of justice and mercy. Because until you get God's mercy, and that requires getting his justice, giving thanks is always going to be a chore that you don't really want to do. You know, these ten men with leprosy, they come to Jesus and they yell, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. The actual word for pity there is, is the Greek word eleo, which, which means mercy. And the particular form of the word that's used here conveys a sense of urgency. Their urgency, they're urgently pleading with Jesus, not for justice, not for what they deserve. They're pray, praying for mercy. Lord, we don't deserve this, but have mercy on us because of your character, because of who you are and your great power. To understand God's mercy, though, you have to understand God's justice. God's justice is the justice whereby he gives us what we deserve. God's mercy is the mercy whereby he gives us better than we deserve. Sometimes God acts in justice. Sometimes God acts in mercy. God never acts with injustice. He never gives anybody worse than what they deserve. But justice and mercy, now this is God's justice vertically toward us. I'm not talking here about horizontal justice with which we're to give each other what we deserve. Uh, I pray for that, but I don't pray for the other justice because I know what I deserve. I pray for mercy. You know, I mean, when you consider 
where we were in the garden, and then we got kicked out of the garden because we declared our independence from God. Remember in the garden what, what, what God had told Adam and Eve, our first parents, the first humans. He said, everything here is yours. It's all blessing. It's all, it's, it's all for you, except that one tree in the middle, that one you don't want to eat from because when you eat from that, you're going to discover good and evil by being you know, mastered by evil. <laughs> um, and, and penalty, the day you eat it, you will die. You will surely die. That means all of humanity, from a Jewish mindset, all of humanity in Adam's loins, if you will, was to die that day. That day you will surely die. Meaning from the moment of conception, I should die and go to hell. I should be under God's judgment. I should live forever outside of the garden. No way back. That's justice. That, that's what he said. If you do this, this is what's going to happen. And it's justice. It's, just, it's God being holy and just, giving humanity exactly what they deserved. But God didn't actually do that. He gave this incredible stay of execution, which is mercy. He gave all of us mercy. And until we understand what mercy is and what justice we deserve, your heart won't find very much for which you can give thanks. I'm pretty hesitant to ask for justice from God. I pray for human justice, but I ask for mercy because I know what I deserved. We easily take mercy for granted. I remember one seminary professor down at Reformed Theological Seminary, he, uh, he gave students project and there was a list of, of three papers that they would have to write throughout the semester and, and he made sure to tell them that, that they needed to be done on time because he needed time to, to you know, review them and, and grade them everything. And, and the first one came due and there were 30 students and there were 29 papers and he said, Sullivan, where's your paper? And he says, oh, I'm so sorry, doctor. I'm so sorry, prof. I, I, you know, this happened and that happened, this happened and that happened. And then, and then the dog came and then it was just a mess. And I'm so sorry. It'll never, ever, ever happen again, please. He says, all right, get it to me tomorrow. That's mercy. The next papers came due a month later. 30 students, 22 papers. Goes through the eight names. Where's your paper? Each has a reason. Each says, I'll get it to you tomorrow, I promise. Says, okay. Third one comes due. 30 students, 15 papers. Sullivan, where's your paper? I'll get it to you next week, Prof. F. Anthony, where's your paper? Um, I was going to finish it up today and get it to you first thing in the morning. F. Baker, where's your paper? I, F. And he went straight through 15 Fs. And what do you think the hue and cry from the back of the room was as they all rose up together and said, that's not fair. Professor, you are being unjust toward us. We deserve to turn our things in late. We have come to take your mercy for granted. And when you give us what we deserve, we accuse you of being evil. That's what we do with God. When I can say that I deserved, at the moment of conception, death and condemnation on account of my rebellion against God as one united covenantally to 
Adam, then I am in a position to see God's mercy everywhere I go. The fact that I am alive, I get one more day to live today. Thank you, Jesus. I ate food this morning and it didn't make me sick. Thank you, Jesus. I have people here who love me. Thank you, Jesus. I can breathe the air in here. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not on fire right now. Thank you, Lord. You know, it's just, it's, it's a sunset, a friend, a pleasant meal, not being sick being sick, but having medicine, having hope, having another day to live in Christ, giving thanks to God with joy in your heart because you're filled with the Spirit. That's, that's what God is offering us here. And, and that's what it takes to develop thankfulness in your heart that you then want to return to God in thanksgiving. You know, you probably think it's silly, but every night I have a little bedtime ritual with my two cats, Socks and Leela. Um, I give them their dinner, and then I lure them to the bedroom and close the door so I can have, you know, a little bit of alone time without two cats on top of me before I go to bed. And, uh, uh, and so um, as I'm getting their treats together, which is like freeze-dried chicken, um, I, I, I start walking to the bedroom, and they start following me, and I sing a little song to Leela. It's different every week, but it's like... Uh, that's my Leela, my baby girl. That's my Leela. She's ferocious and she has four claws. You know, something like it. it's always different. My baby girl. And and I just swap out different adjectives. It could be she has 18 toes. It could be she's really striped. She's got a furry belly. She's got a big long tail. You know, anything. But then um, I set down her dish in the bedroom and I, I thank God. I say, Father, I give you thanks for my little girl Leela. Uh, give her health and a long life. And, and, and then I tell Leela I love her, and I tell her that God loves her. And then I go set Socks' food down, uh, and I, I, I thank Jesus for my little boy Socks, and, and, and I ask that God would give uh, my little boy Socks uh, a long life and health and, and extend his days. I may thank both of them, thank God for both of them for extending their days, because they both had sicknesses that could have killed them. And, and, and then I tell Socks that Jesus loves him, and I love him too because Jesus has compassion on all he has made, and, and God has mercy on all he has made, and then I go out the door and propose it and fix myself something to drink and sit down in front of the television to watch some really boring rerun that'll make me sleepy. Um, now, you can say that's weird, but that is so completely sincere. I got one more day with two wonderful cats. How could I not give thanks to God for that? What a blessing. Understanding God's justice, what we deserve, opens the door to see his mercy everywhere we go. And that can help us feel gratitude and turn that gratitude into an offering of thanks. You want to know what Christian thankfulness is? You want it in your heart? Look at Jesus. He is the man of mercy himself. He is the one who came to, 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 to take on our form, humiliating himself by becoming human and, and, and taking on all the infirmities of being human for our sake to, to so that he could understand what we're going through, so that he could suffer with us. He's the one who then took all of our guilt and shame upon himself and allowed it to crush him completely so that, so that we might have life, eternal life with God. This is Jesus who comes to the defense of the woman caught in adultery. This is Jesus who blesses people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation and brings them together in a way that the world has never been able to do in a unity, in a, in a unified family of love. You know, we read the very first lines of this passage is that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And you know what that meant. 
He was on his way to die. And when he, when he promised healing to these ten men with leprosy, he was going to his death to pay for that healing. When he told the one who returned thanks that he was delivered, that he was now in God's family, that his faith had saved him, he, he was going on his way to his death to secure that which he had just done. Jesus at that point was already indebted to that because he had already given all this grace in his forbearance that he would then have to purchase himself on the cross. It is by his wounds that we are healed. There's a, uh, an old Doctor Who episode with David Tennant as the doctor and his sidekick Rose, and uh, it's called New New York. And, uh, and, and in it, he, you know, takes Billy Piper, you know, Rose, uh, to the city of, of New New York, only properly it's actually New 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 York, and, and they're on this hillside of green apple grass, and across the way is this huge, like, massive futuristic city, which is, is New 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 Manhattan, I think. Um, and, uh, and, and then on his side, there is this, like, huge modern hospital and as they enter the hospital, uh, they note that there's no shop. It should have like a little shop. But, but, but the hospital is run by cats who are also nuns and nurses. And they're walking up on, on their bipeds, but they're cat people. And, and, and as he turns out, he starts seeing all these people healed of all these amazing diseases. Diseases that, that have no known cure in space or time because he knows because he's traveled the universe and of space and time. And he finally gets inside the bowels of the hospital to the area that's off limits to humans and others. And he sees thousands and thousands and thousands of pickled live human beings behind glass cases. They're force-grown clones, human beings who have been infected with every single known disease. And they're keeping them alive second by second in agony and pain in order to use them to produce the cures that are performing the miracles within the hospital. And there's a point at which they then begin to escape. And as they touch people, as they touch cat people, as they touch humans, they shrivel up and die because they're so infectious. And, and what the doctor, of course, does is he jumps into a pit and has every single medicine showered down upon him. He's soaking wet. He's loving it. He's taking a shower. You know. and, and then he goes up to the cat to the, the human clones and he begins to touch them and the medicine transfers from him to them and one by one they become perfectly clean perfectly healed perfectly smooth human beings human beings who can think human beings who can talk they become a new, new subspecies of homo sapien and in a sense what Jesus did is Jesus became one of those human clones with all the diseases of the world, all the sickness, all the sin, all the infirmities, and he took them up and, and, and allowed them to infect him so that he in turn might touch us and heal us. He took up our iniquities, but also our infirmities. Isaiah 53, surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus, the restorer, who in love became a leper for us, that we might be made whole. Let's pray.